This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. Howdy, how are we? Good, nice, welcome, awesome. So spring break is officially upon us. I guess it's the end of South by as well as spring break. Um, and so we've got a good bit of traveling um, that we, we know of. A- anybody else heading out this next week? Just curious. Yeah, a couple people. Sweet. Awesome. Well, glad you're here. Um, yeah, glad you're here. So er- early on, I, I was uh, thinking back Anytime we moved here, we've been here for, I guess this summer will be two years uh, since we moved here. And every time we move here, uh, someone would ask, and you're like, why, why are you here? Um, and, and we would say, oh, we moved here to start a church. And the next question typically would be, oh, what kind of church is it? Um, which, which we learned early on was being asked, like, where do we stand on the social issues? Um, and, and so we, we learned to navigate that question uh, pretty early on. Um, and so I remember one conversation going like this. It was with a friend at the gym, and she asked me what kind of church we are. We talked about it, and then, um, and then she began to tell me her, her church experience. And so uh, she said she grew up in the church, and, uh, and that it was early on at a young age where she began to see that the people inside the church uh, were incredibly hostile and mean towards one another. Her, her grandfather was a minister, and she said more than anybody she saw it through him. You know, that, that people were criticizing him all the time, he would get emails all the time, uh, that, that they, they were not supportive, and that there was just a lot of arguing, or arguing in the church. Uh, and so watching her grandfather go through these years of being a minister and, and really suffering at the hands of the people in his church, watching the people inside the church fight with one another, watching the people inside the church keep people out of the church that weren't like them, she just, she's into this conversation by saying, I learned at a young age that the people outside the church were more loving than the people inside the church, and that was it for me. And she's never been back since. And so she's, um, I mean, she's got kids now that, so she's been years, 20, 30 years now since she's ever been in a church, because early on she determined there's more love outside the church than there is inside the church. I'm willing to bet that you've probably had a conversation um, like that. Uh, that you've maybe heard someone say, like, man, I, I, I'm, I'm fine with God, I just don't really love the church. I'm fine with Jesus, I just don't know about the people. Um, and so I'm, I'm betting that you've probably run into someone or a conversation uh, similar to that. And so here's, here's my conviction, here's my belief. I think that people are not so much opposed to Jesus. I think more often than not, people are opposed to the people who claim to follow Jesus. Right? I think rather than a, a, a dislike or opposition to God, there is a dislike or opposition to the people who say they, they follow and worship God because uh, there, there's a big talk and, and not a whole lot of backing that up. Right? Like there's this big talk of love and then there's also a lot of hostility that seems to happen uh, within the church. And this has got to change. Absolutely has to change. The, the, the hostility and the fighting and, and the, the keeping people out and the, the not loving one another has to change or we're going to continue to hear over and over and over again this story of people who are like, well, you know, uh, there's more love outside the church than in the church. And it has to start here. We, we can't just think like, oh yeah, that, that's a great idea or that's going to start over there. It's like we have to, each person, each one of us has to take on the responsibility of saying, no, that's not going to be me. 
I'm not going to continue to be this hostile and argumentative and divisive person, which is so often found within the church. And so my hope, our prayer, is that we will be a different church, that we will be a church that loves one another incredibly well, where anyone and everyone is welcome to come and have a seat at the table and explore who Jesus is, and that regardless whether we disagree on issues or not, we can still sit at a table together and love and care for one another in community. That, that has to be who we are as Christians and as a church. Paul's point here in Ephesians 2, the, the main thing that he is wanting to get across is that in the death of Jesus, hostility has also found its death. That, that in, in the death of Christ, the hostile death of Jesus, hostility among one another has also found its end. That we have no place being hostile with one another because Christ has suffered at the hostility of the cross. Paul starts with the gospel, chapter 1, and into the beginning of, of chapter 2, right? Paul is just describing the, that we've been chosen in God and that we were dead in our sins, we've been saved by grace through faith. He starts with the gospel message, and then he moves into what that does in our lives, right? And so Paul's understanding is that when we truly see the grace of God, that's why he's praying in chapter 1, that God would open our eyes and that we would have the spirit of, of revelation to know who God is. Because when we truly see who God is, when we truly see the gospel, that, that we were hostile towards God, and yet in love he moved near to us while we were still hostile, when we truly get that, it changes us to then treat people the same way that God treated us. So Colossians says that we were hostile in nature. Act, Romans 5, we were actively sinners against God, right? So, so God's here, and our back is betraying him and opposed to him, doing nothing to move towards him, and yet he's pursuing us in love. That's the gospel message that, that chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 is talking about, and that Paul is believing once we get that, it changes everything. You, you, ever, you ever had this, you, you've known what to do? Like you've known what is right, you've known what you should do, and yet for some reason you just don't seem to do it. You find yourself there again, and you're like, dang it! Like I knew this, I knew not to do this. I knew that if you play with fire, you're gonna get burned. I knew that, I knew what God said, and yet here I am again. Maybe that's just me. Like I'm, I'm hopefully that's not, okay, I see a couple reactions. Like yeah, I've been there. Um, thank you, Mike. Mike all the time, he's, he's no. Every day, every day, right? But have you ever just had, you have the desire to do right. Paul writes about this in Romans 7. He's like, I know what I want to do, and yet I don't do it. And what Paul also says is that the, that the, the, pro, the reason that we don't do what we know we ought to do, what really I think we want to do, is that the gospel just hasn't grabbed hold of our lives enough. That, that we haven't in humility been changed by the humility of Jesus. Until we are so captivated by his love for us, by his humility towards us, man, selfishness runs deep. We're going to choose our own way. But Paul is saying, man, when we get this, when we remember who we were and what God has done to save us, that changes everything. And then in joy, we follow in obedience. In joy, we love God. In joy, we love others because of the way he first loved us. But it has to start with the gospel. The gospel changes everything. We're not going to muscle our way or self-discipline ourselves or to be like, all right, now I'm going to get it. Now I'm gonna, ne never again. I'm changing right now because then we're just going to be right back where we were. It has to be God in us 
compelled and changed by the gospel, or it's just not going to happen. And so that's the point that Paul is making here, is that we start with the gospel. That's why Paul starts again in verse 11 and 12, reminding us who we were without God. Right? So he says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, Gentiles are non-Jews, so anyone who is not a Jew, if you are not um, Jewish by, by heritage, then you are, according to the Bible, a Gentile. So it's just anyone who's not a Jew. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by, in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Listen, if we're going to end hostility within the church, within this church and within the church in the world, it has to start by realizing that the hostility that was due to us has been removed by the gospel. That first, we have been brought near to God and that is what is gonna move us to move near, compel us to move near to others. There's a, a biblical worldview that's important to see when we read the Bible. And it's, it's this, that God has, God has created us to be in relation with him. And so, Robert, if you have that, that first slide, um, that first image, that God's design is for God and his people to be together. Like, that's God's picture, for, for us to walk in relationship with God. We see it in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God creates Adam and Eve, and they walk in community together. That there's harmony with, with God and with people and with Adam and Eve. There's perfect relationship. But that is the picture. God and his people sharing life together. You see that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You also see that at the end in Revelation 21. That when Jesus makes the, brings the new heaven and the new earth, it's marked by the fact that God is with his people. And so that's always God's design, that he would walk with his people. But we also know that there's a world of mess in between Genesis 2 and Revelation 21. The, the world that we live in. And so rather than us living like this, we live separated from God because of sin. And so God's design is this, but then there's this wall of hostility that is created. So Robert, hit the next slide here um, that will give us that picture. So instead of walk, living with God and his people, we're separated from God because of this wall of sin that is created. We, 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 we start apart from God. So Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they choose to walk away from God. They choose to do their own thing. That's what sin is. God says do this, and we're like, hey God, I'm pretty good on my own. I'm going to choose this. God says go this way, and we think I'm going to go that way. Right? So that's what sin, anytime, any thought, any action, any motive that is away from God's desire and away from God's will is sin. And what that does is it separates us from him. It removes us from his presence. That's why Paul says you were separated from Christ. You were without God and without hope. So Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin. What does God do? He separates them from his presence and sends them outside of the garden. And it creates this division between God and people, between God and us, this wall of hostility. At the end of Genesis 3, we see that God puts the cherub with a flaming sword outside of the garden to protect it from sin entering back in. So it's not just like this kind of casual, like, oh, hey, go over there, go to time out for a bit. Like, the separation due from sin is hostile. God's wrath is set towards sin. It's incredibly hostile. 
And so this is where we begin. This is where we start. Romans 6, 23 says the wages of sin is death. What we earn for our sin is death. Separation, a, a wall of hostility between us and God, but not only us and God, us and his people. This is where Paul starts. Remember that you were on the outside looking in. You were separated from God. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the co covenant of promise. You, you ever had that feeling where you're on the out, like you're left out? You're on the outside looking in? Maybe it's, you know, a group of friends, like there's, you're the third wheel, and you're like, yeah, they're doing their thing, and I'm just kind of chilling here. Like, you, just that feeling of on the outside. I mean, shoot, we, we look at it with, in, in middle school and high school, like that is the crisis of life, right? Like, I have to find a place to belong. I can't be alone in this world. College students, right, that first year, I mean, it's weird. Like, you're just trying to find a place to belong. Like, who, who are some people that can be my people that I, I don't have to sit alone in my dorm room I can call and hang out with, right? It's the same out of college, by the way. It doesn't ever change. Those first few years out of college are awkward, like really, really weird. You're just trying to figure out, like, how, what do I do now? Like, do I, do I hang out with my friends? Like, I'm a grown-up. Am I supposed to, how does this work? And so you're just, we, we're created, all right, looking for this place of, of belonging, and it's miserable, absolutely miserable. I was telling my daughter, she's in, she's in third grade, Molly's in third grade, right? Third grade, cool. Um, we, I get confused, there's four of them, right? So I just guess. Um, and so she, I mean, she's just kind of wrestling with that, and I was like, baby, that still happens today for me, like where I'm, I kind of feel left out with friends, and it's just, it's a miserable place to feel like you're on the outside looking in. You, you don't you don't fit, you don't belong, that, that there's this club over here that for whatever reason you don't meet the requirements for, and so you just get to watch. You just get to, to look in on. And Paul's like, hey, you've got to remember that's where you were. From, from the life and the presence of God, true beauty, true love, you were on the outside. You were not a part of God's design to be with him and his people. I find it fascinating here that when Paul is talking about the, the separation, the alienation, it's separation from God and from his people. It's not just God. That, that's, that's huge. That's huge because we weren't created to just one-on-one -on -one with God. We were created to be a part of a family of people with God. And so again, the, the importance of being a part of the local church, it's, it's just a non-negotiable in the scriptures. We don't, we don't love God and hate his bride. That doesn't work. If we say we love God, then we love his bride and his church. If we're a part of God, then we're also a part of his church. Those two go together. We don't get to sit out on the church, but I'll take all of Jesus. That doesn't work in the Bible. When we're separated from God, we're separated from his people. When we're with God, we're with his people. And so being a part of a local church is the norm and the expectation of being a Christian. Because you don't separate those two. Jesus and his bride, they go together. And so whether it's this church or, or you move and it's another church, just, just know that to follow Christ is also to be a part of his church. It's, it's, it's not an option for Jesus. And so Paul says, hey, you were on the outside looking in. You were separated. There was division from God, but also from 
the community, from his family. Literally in Jerusalem, um, around the temple, there was a wall that was put up. It's called the Sorek. And, and, and it, lit, it kept Gentiles outside of the temple. So there was a court. I think we have a picture. Do we have a picture of the temple? Perfect. So you can see there's, there's a court for Gentiles where anyone can go, but then there's this wall right here that Gentiles were not allowed inside the temple. There was a wall put up that kept people out that weren't Jews. Literally, there were signs on the wall that read, any Gentile entering beyond this wall will have only himself to blame for his ensuing death. It was so divisive that you had to look like the Jews. You had to talk like the Jews. You had to be a Jew in order to step into the temple, in order to have access and so Paul is just driving home this point. Hey, remember, you were separated. You were on the outside, not only from God, but also from his people, also from his community. If you didn't measure up, if you didn't follow the law of the commandments, you didn't get in. You didn't have a seat at the table. You got to watch everybody else, but you, you yourself, you didn't get a seat. It is so important for us to realize that that is our story. Like, that is our story. All of us, we're on the outside looking in. The, the New Testament makes it incredibly clear that it's, it's the Jews as well, even though th they believed that it was their works that brought them to God. It was actually faith that brought them to God. And they too were on the outside looking in. They, they didn't have that relationship with God. We have to see that. We have to see that we were separated, alienated, strangers, without hope, without God. We did not have a place to belong. We we're separated. So Paul says, remember, remember that. But God's gonna change the criteria. God's going to change the metric of measurement that allows us into his presence, that brings us into the family of God. No longer was it going to be a certain law of commandments that you had to do and follow and hit the mark with. Instead, the metric was going to change to faith in Jesus alone. Faith in Jesus alone who would measure up, who would live up, and so that everybody could be invited to have a seat at the table. Anyone and everyone, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you've cleaned yourself up with good works or not, no matter who you are, the invitation was offered for everyone to take and receive the grace of God and by faith trust and follow Jesus. And in so you have the presence of God and the people of God as a part of your life. And so that's where Paul takes it next in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's that, that, that word but. We read it in, in, you know, earlier in Ephesians 2, right? We were dead in our sins, but God being rich in mercy, according to his great love, has made us alive. Right? It's that, it's that turning point. The tune changes. You were on the outside looking in. You were separated. You were far from God. But now you've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. But now Jesus has brought you in. Not because you were good enough, not because you read your Bible enough, not because you went to church, not because you were a part of a community group, not because you served. Only by the blood of Jesus are we brought near to the presence of God. That's it. One requirement, one expectation, simply Jesus. I don't know if you've ever wondered, sometimes I, I look at the songs we sing. 
I think even maybe the song that we're singing next, um, Nothing But the Blood, I'm like, that's kind of an interesting song, right? Like, only in a church do you sing anything like that. It's like, it's a, like wh- why are we singing about blood? If you go back to the Passover, Exodus, when the, the Israelites are slaves in Egypt and God says, hey, I'm going to rescue you out. I'm going to make you a new people. I'm going to give you a new hope. And he does that by flexing his muscle against the Egyptians. And God sovereignly reaches in and forces Pharaoh's hand to let his people go. So you've got the ten plagues. No, most likely you've heard of them. The tenth plague, though, is the one where God's judgment against sin is going to come down on Egypt. And he says that he's going to kill the firstborn of every family. And again, it's kind of like, man, that's, that seems a bit strong, right? But g- the punishment of sin is death. And so it's, it's a justifiable, like, the, the sin, the judgment against sin is death. And so God says, hey, I'm going to judge these people and bring death, but there is a way out. He says, if you'll take a lamb and you'll kill the lamb in place of the firstborn and you put the blood over the door of your house, when God's angel of wrath comes in through the city, he will see the blood over the house and pass over that house and the lamb can die in place of the firstborn. And so God says, if by faith you trust me and you sacrifice the lamb instead, then his wrath will pass over that house because the blood has marked that house of faith. It's the blood of the lamb alone. The angel of God's wrath doesn't come in and look for, man, are these people good neighbors? Like, have they been doing their family devotionals? Have they, been, have they been loving one another? Like, are the mom and dad, are they nice to the kids? Are the kids obedient? Like, that's not what God's angel is looking for. There's one thing that the angel of wrath is looking for, and it's the blood of the spotless lamb to cover that house. That's it. One thing. That's what saves them. And it's the same story for us. John sees Jesus and he says, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That Jesus would die in our place. And when we, by faith, trust him, his blood covers us. So God no longer sees our sin. He sees the blood of Jesus and our sins are forgiven. He doesn't see how good we are. He doesn't see how much we have or haven't messed up. He doesn't see if we determine we're going to get this right only 10 minutes later to get it wrong. That's not what God looks at. He looks for one thing alone and that is do we trust that Jesus alone forgives our sins and by his resurrection we're given new life. And if we trust Jesus, that's what God looks at and that's what God sees in us and we're brought near to his presence. One thing and one thing only. By grace you have been saved. It's not by our works. We're on the outside looking in. We're not, we're not at the wall of hostility saying, God, hey, we've been really good. Let us in. He's looking for one thing, and that is the blood of Jesus. Have you trusted Christ? Like, have you trusted in Jesus alone? N- not like, yeah, Jesus plus my good things. Not Jesus, and I prayed this prayer. Not Jesus, and I, I got baptized. Jesus alone. God's not looking for anything else but Jesus. Have you trusted him? That's how we're brought near. That's how we're, we're given community. The blood of Jesus. We were separated from God. On the outside looking in, we've been brought near by Jesus, but not just to God, also to the family of God. For he himself is our peace, 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus has come, and Robert, if you have that last uh, slide, has come, and where there was a dividing wall of hostility, literally in Jerusalem, there was a wall separating Gentiles from the, the, the temple, the presence of God. Jesus has come and crushed that dividing wall. So there's no longer a wall of hostility that separates us from God, and there should no longer be a wall of hostility that separates us from each other. The, the law of commandments, what we had to do in order to measure up, in order to have a place, a seat at the table, Jesus has done. He's abolished it because he perfectly lived up to it and fulfilled it. And when he died on the cross, he suffered hostility so that we no longer have to be hostile with one another. I think, think about rivalries, like sports rivalries. If you're not a sports person, um, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, it's just the first thing that came to mind, right? So I think about sports rivalries, that there's times where it's like, hey, like I've got my colors and you've got your colors and we can no longer be friends. So I think about, you know, UT in Oklahoma. You, you may have been best friends in high school, but one of you goes to OU and one of you goes to UT and y'all can't be friends anymore, right? Like there's this rivalry that is like, okay, this is no good. But at the same time, there's, there's things that are greater than rivalries. They're like, okay, like it's just a school. We, we're still family, you know, so the divided household, like you don't really see family hating each other because one went to one school and one went to the other. And like, I mean, maybe there is, but that's, that's other dysfunctional things we got to work through. But there's bigger things that cause us to lay down our, our colors, our allegiances, and say, no, 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 family's more important than a school. Like, a friendship is more important than a school. I mean, in the church, we have so many dividing walls of preferences. I like this musical style, or I like to dress like this, or if they're, if they're not casual, or if they're not, you know, if the spirit's not moved. We got all these different things where we're like, I have to see this, and we're putting up walls of division between one another, and Jesus is saying, there's one thing that unites all of us, and it's me. That when we step under the name of Jesus, that becomes our chief allegiance. And all of our other jerseys and colors and preferences that seem to divide us, we're called to lay down because we all unite as one family under the name of Jesus. And if he has crushed in his body the dividing wall of hostility, shame on me if I ever put it back up. Who, would, who am I to minimize the cross of Christ and the hostility that he suffered by adding hostility among other brothers and sisters in Christ? He has destroyed the wall of hostility so that where there was two or three or four or five or six different preferences, there can be one family all united under the name of Jesus. There's no place in the Christian church for the divisive wall of hostility among one another. No place. But let's be honest. Sundays is still often the most segregated hour of the week. There's still racism running rampant in the Christian church. 
where we say, no, we're all under the name of Jesus, but we're going we're gonna to divide ourselves based on a, a skin color? That's not, that doesn't line up with Ephesians 2. Or, or we're going to treat people differently based on gender? That, that doesn't line up with Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to discriminate based on age? Well, that, that seems to me like another dividing wall of hostility that we're putting up. Or, or socioeconomic status? Whether, whether you have enough money or you don't? Like, that, that seems to me like another dividing wall of hostility that we're putting up. Paul says in Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If we are taking on the name of Jesus Christ, then we drop all of our other preferences and allegiances. Our one identity that trumps all is Jesus. And so it doesn't matter what your skin color is. It doesn't matter what your story was. It doesn't matter how much money's in your bank account. It doesn't matter how old you are, if you're male or female. We are all one under the name of Jesus. And it has to change in the church. It absolutely has to change. Because we are mocking the cross of Christ when we put up dividing walls of hostility. And I don't think any of us want to stand before the Lord one day and say, Jesus, you suffered well, but I had to put up more dividing walls of hostility. It has to end here with us. Don't worry about other churches. Don't worry about other people. Start with you and me. It has to end because Christ has torn down that wall. Don't forget where you came from. Remember, you were separated, you were alienated, you had no hope, and God moved near to you, the outsider, and brought you in. Heaven forbid that we don't move near to the outsider and bring them in the same way that Jesus did to us. How arrogant of us. How arrogant of us to not move near to the people who are different than us after the God who moved near to us who were wildly different from him. It has to end. There's no place in the gospel. No place. Christ has demolished that wall. He's torn it down. And he's gone to all people in all places that they can all be one family under him. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. God desires for all people in all places to unite as one family under the name of Jesus. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every skin color, all worshiping the one Jesus as Lord. That's been his desire from the very beginning, that we would rub shoulders with people who are incredibly different than us, different cultures and different backgrounds. We'd say, what brought you in? And they'd say, Jesus. And they'd ask us, what brought you in? And we'd say, Jesus. And we'd all be together as one family because we all have the same spiritual DNA. That's what he says, right? That we've all been, through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We may have different blood in our, running through our bodies, but we've got the same spiritual DNA. The Spirit of God unites us as one family, brother and sister. For all who are far and all who are near. That's why we have to go to the nations, because Jesus did. He was concerned with it. That's why we have to look outside of ourselves, because Jesus was. If God didn't offer peace to those who were far, I guarantee you we would be on the outside looking in still. Because we are the far ones. 
the message of the scripture didn't start here in America. We are the far ones. Praise God that he brought peace to those who are far. Because that's us. Which is why we have to continue to go. One of uh, my favorite stories of a person who's done this incredibly well uh, is St. Patrick. So today is St. Patrick's Day. Uh, if you didn't know that, uh, happy St. Patrick's Day to you. Some fun facts about St. Patrick's Day. Uh, we celebrate St. Patrick's Day on the 17th because that's when most believe that St. Patrick died. Uh, was on March 17th. Uh, the shamrock became a, a central um, image of St. Patrick, not because of the four-leaf clover. That had nothing to do with Patrick. I don't even know where that came into the story. But Patrick would use the three-leaf shamrock to describe the Trinity, how there's three leaves but one shamrock, Father, Son, Spirit, one God. And so that's the illustration that Patrick would often use to talk about the Trinity, uh, the triune God, was the, the shamrock. So four-leaf clover, just get rid of that thing. Like, it's just not even worth it. Um, my favorite fun fact, did you know Patrick was not even Irish? Was that, wait, wait, wait. I can't tell if that was sarcastic or legit. Like, I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> It was real. <laughs> Robert does know that. Robert does know that. Yeah, Patrick was not even Irish. He's, he was English. He was born in Britain. So how do we connect Patrick to Ireland then? When he was 16, Patrick was abducted from his family and taken to Ireland by raiders and held as a slave for the next six years of his life. From 16 to 22, Patrick was a slave in Ireland. He was a shepherd and treated poorly and under harsh conditions, but yet as a slave, that is where he came to see and to trust Christ. Amazing, right? Like it's in our worst circumstances oftentimes that we most clearly see who God is. It's as a slave that he comes to trust Jesus. Six years later, he receives a vision from the Lord telling him to run to the sea that there's a boat there that will take him back home. And so he, he literally runs to the sea there's a boat there, talks his way onto it, and it takes him back home to Britain. So you can imagine, like imagine his family, imagine his community, right? Like this, this guy, Patrick's been gone for six years, no clue where he is, and then he shows up. Like the celebration that takes place, man, I can't imagine, like I, I'm gone for, for six days, all I want is my shower and bed. Like that's it, right? Like I just want to be home. Can you imagine six years, like just the feeling of comfort of being home? But Patrick was a totally changed man, completely different. He wrote in his autobiography, he said, Therefore, indeed, I cannot keep silent, nor would it be proper. So many favors and graces has the Lord designed to bestow on me in the land of my captivity. Did you, you hear that? So many favors and graces has the Lord designed to bestow on me in the land of my captivity. For after chastisement from God and recognizing him, our way to repay him is to exalt him and confess his wonders before every nation under heaven. So Patrick sees Christ and he's like, oh my gosh, that God would move near to me and he so transformed Patrick from the inside out that Patrick, once back home, decided to voluntarily return to Ireland with the message of the gospel. And it is said that a revival swept the country because Patrick returned by his own choice to share the name of Jesus to the people who held him as slave for six years. That's why we connect Patrick to Ireland. 
What a move of humility. Like, what a move of humility. What causes someone to do that? What causes someone to voluntarily go back to their enemies to love and serve and preach the gospel? It's only when they realize that they were God's enemies and that God came near to them that they're then transformed to go to others, to go near and far with the peace of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that can change someone like that. That's the message of the gospel. Can you imagine us as a church like that? Come on. We're willing to walk across the street to meet our neighbors. We're willing to share food with someone different than us. We're willing to invite people into our homes who have different backgrounds and beliefs than us. We're willing to to go to our enemies in love and kindness because the gospel has so changed their lives. Can you imagine how beautiful this church will be when the diversity of all different races and and backgrounds and socioeconomic brackets and, and, and languages, when all of that comes together to unite under the one name of Jesus, that is a picture of what heaven will be like. That is what we're meant to be here today. And it's just not an option. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And we've been brought into the family of God. We've been brought into the family. We didn't bring ourselves in. We've been brought in. We've been invited in to have a seat at the table with the king and the family of God. Remember that. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. We stand on the foundation of Jesus and on our spiritual grandparents in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit in whom the whole structure the whole structure, every stone, every diversity, every, every different culture and background and language and story, only when it's all brought together and joined together, then do we grow into the holy temple of God. Yo, I just, I read this, and I can't see that diversity is an option. I, I think that God is telling us it, it is a non-negotiable for the church of God to be diverse. Because it's when we all are joined together that we build up to represent the temple of God best. And so we we just can't settle for everyone looking the same and talking the same and dressing the same and and kind of having the same cultural tendencies. It's just, I, I can't see that it's an option here. Because what best represents the gospel of Christ is when we drop our preferences and allegiances that the world holds so tightly to and we say Jesus trumps everything else. And so I'm gonna sit next to the person that's incredibly different than me because that's who I was to him and he sat next to me. It has to start here. It has to change. It has to. For the glory of God, for for his sake, it's just not an option. And so we're, we're not going to settle there. We're going to go after that as a church. Beautiful picture, foretaste of what heaven will be. 
So just as we, as we finish, a couple practical things. Like how do we do this? How, how do you do that? First thing I'll say is study Jesus. Man, look at the life of Jesus. Right, it's the Pharisees that are like, oh man, if only Jesus knew who this person was. And Jesus says, no, no, this is who I want to sit with. It's the Pharisees that grumbled because Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors. So we study the life of Jesus and we, we follow him. There, there's, I started reading this book on humility um, and he says, until a humility which will rest in nothing less than the end and death of self. Until a humility which will rest in nothing less than the end and death of self, which gives up all the honor of men as Jesus did, to seek the honor that comes from God alone, which absolutely makes and counts itself for nothing, that God may be all, that the Lord alone may be exalted, until such a humility be what we seek in Christ above our own joy and welcome at any price, there is very little hope of a religion that will change the world. We are not going to change the city around us until the humility of Christ so invades our life that we move and respond in the same humility. We're just not. We're way too selfish. We have to study our Savior and know Jesus. If we think we're going to be a church and a people that follows him in obedience and we don't actually know him and study him, we're kidding ourselves. We're going to get down the end of the road and think, man, we missed it. Study Jesus. Get in this word daily to know him. That's the first thing we have to do. Second thing, we've got to be honest with ourselves. We've got to be honest with our prejudices. We've got to be honest. We've got to confess it. We've got to repent of it. So I don't know if that's just with someone close to you, your community group, but we have to get that out there because if we hide, if we keep those things buried, that's where Satan works. It's in the hiding. Hiding didn't exist until Genesis 3 when sin enters the world. When we hide from reality, that's where Satan's gonna work. We've gotta confess it and we've gotta repent with one another. So be honest. Where, where are you struggling here? A great way to look, who's at your table? Literally, who is that? Who do you eat with? Do you have people in your home who are different than you? Do you hang out socially with people who are different than you? And you look at the people Jesus set around a table with, wildly diverse, all over the place, right? The rich, the poor, the religious, the non-religious, the Pharisees, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, the blind, the sick, like they all, they've all got a seat with Jesus. Who's at your table? Are you intentionally pursuing people who are different than you? Practically, here, go meet someone you don't know. Man, we come to church, and it's so easy just to stay really close to the people we already know. Go, go walk across the room and introduce yourself to someone you don't know. Maybe they've been here for five years, but if you don't know them, they don't know you, hey, we're family, let's meet each other. So take the step to go and meet someone you don't know. You want to take it a step further? Go to lunch with them afterwards. You want to take it a step further? Buy their lunch. But if we can't do it here, we're not going to do it anywhere else. So go meet someone you don't know. Get to know your neighbors. Like walk outside of your house, stand at the front door or apartment or whatever, and the surrounding homes or units, 
Make it a goal to know every person that surrounds your house. Go grab coffee, throw a block party, get to know your neighbors. Celebrate the differences, enjoy different cultures, get to know, really know other people around you. We've been saying, who's your one? Who is one person? If all that's too much, you're like, that's a lot, I really am, like, I like to just be alone. One person. Who is one person that God has put in your world that you can be intentional to go know and love and serve and share Jesus with? One person. Just start praying for them. I think a lot of times we just need to, we need to confess and ask forgiveness. I, I think a lot of times that's where it's got to start. It's right here in our own hearts. Confessing, repenting, asking forgiveness. If there's anyone in your world that you've sinned against, that you've put up a dividing wall of hostility, that you have excluded from your table, I believe the best thing you can do is confess and ask for their forgiveness and move near to them in love. And that is tough. So tough. But it's what the gospel calls us to. Man, the Christ has come and he's divided the wall of hostility. We're no longer separated from God or his people in Jesus. And in humility, as recipients of that free grace, we're invited to go and to live likewise to others. That's our prayer. That's who we want to be as a church, a diverse body, a family of people following Jesus, where anyone and everyone has a seat at the table to come explore who Jesus is and to sit with the people of God and hear about who God is in their life. I'm gonna invite you to be a part of that with us. I'm gonna challenge you to, in response to God, to be obedient to that call, to don't put up any more walls of hostility, but in grace and humility to love and serve others. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.